following audio is a recording from Holy Cross Church in Tucson, Arizona. Awesome. Let's continue in our, our, our reading of Scripture and our study through the book of Philippians today. And uh, this is called the Book of Encouragement. We've been working through the book of Philippians now for um, a, few, a couple months, and we've got a couple more to go. We're going to read a few verses starting in chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Finally, brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision, who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Let's pause there. I want to give you just a little context of this passage uh, as we prepare for, for this Holy Week, but also for Easter Sunday next week. Um, you can call it an accident, um, or you could call it maybe the kindness of God. We, we're, we plan this 20-week series through the book of Philippians, and Easter Sunday, next Sunday, we come to verses 7 through 11, which are the only place in the book of Philippians that talks about the, uh, the joy the hope, the meaning, and power of the resurrection. And so next Sunday, without skipping a beat, we continue in our Philippians series, and we'll talk on the resurrection. Um, and that we're really excited about that. But first, we get to Palm Sunday. We get to this preparation week for the resurrection, for the death and resurrection of Christ, the preparation of Jesus coming into Jerusalem, preparing the way for his death and resurrection. Um, we lived up in Gladden Farms the last almost 10 years now, and uh, we're on my commute to uh, anywhere and to home, back home, we always pass uh, cotton fields. And we pass all these farms out there. And so I get to see all the different seasons of preparation of the land and, and removing all the debris and things like that. And so after harvest of the cotton, the land looks broken, it looks dirty, it looks dry. Uh, there's twigs and even weeds have sprouted up over the course of the season. And it just looks ugly. And after they let the, lay, the ground lay fallow for a little while, they come in with these huge tractors and they prepare the land. They dig up the ground. They remove all of the debris. They remove all of um, the obstacles in the way. And this ground becomes this beautiful, flat, um, just beautiful-looking brown. Never thought I would say that as a... Midwest boy coming out here. It's just beautiful. It's a beautiful tone of, of brown and gray. And, and it is. It's, it's just wonderful. And you see how you get everything cleared, and now it's prepared well for, for a new harvest season, a new watering, a new planting of seeds. And that is what these first few verses of chapter 3 are going to do for us. They help remove the cobwebs, they, uh, the weeds, the debris that keep us from seeing that a relationship with the risen Christ is far better than anything in the whole world. And to help clear some of these theological cobwebs and debris in our way, 
uh, Paul, the writer of, of, the, of Philippians, he, he draws this very stark contrast between competing ideas regarding a life of faith. And we see this in verse 2 to 3, and I just want to read that again. He says, Look out for the dogs. Look out for those evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. So Paul is, is addressing to his friends, there are two ways, about, uh, two ways of finding confidence in our standing with God, in our relationship with God, answering the question, how do we know that we are right with God and at peace with God and have favor with God? Are we on good terms with God? How do we come to know that? And there are some, and Paul calls them dogs, who promote this kind of confidence with God that is found in our religious activity, in this specific instance in circumcision. Then what Paul is promoting is confidence that is based on the perfect righteousness, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. The life, death, and resurrection of Jesus become the basis, the means, the gauge of our relationship with God. And nothing more than that. And so let's, so let's describe these two, and we'll use some really simple ways of describing this, some simple phrases. The first one, uh, my, my decision, confidence in my decision and my life versus Jesus' decision and Jesus' life. And so the first is confidence in my decision and my life. I, I want to talk about a couple analogies to help describe what this looks like to have confidence in this one way of thinking about a relationship with God, my decision and my life. The first analogy is a bridge. Think of the question, where does your confidence rest in, in a sinful person, a person who is sinful in a life of sin, transferring from a life of sin into to being forgiven, into being a forgiven person before God? Many Christians rest their hope on salvation of a, of a past event. Maybe it was they prayed a prayer when they were a child. Um, they went forward during an altar call they made a commitment at a youth retreat. Um, maybe they prayed with a parent or a friend to receive Christ as their Savior. How do you go about describing this relationship with God? In this case, many of these people here, they were circumcised, and they, they, they looked back, they were told to look back to this past event where they were circumcised, and by that, on that basis of obeying God's law and that right of circumcision, they, were found, they found favor with God. So the law in this way becomes a means for our righteousness. Do what God says, and you'll find favor with Him. Obey His rules, and you will be okay. So that's the bridge. How do we cross over from being a sinner to being forgiven? And then another analogy is the yardstick. And the question is, how do we measure our ongoing relationship with God? So let me ask you, and just think in in your mind, what does God think of you today? Like right now, in your mind, what is God's opinion of you right now as you sit? Taking everything that's happened, maybe this, this weekend or this life or this season that you're in, what does he think of you? <coughs> what you're answering is, this is how I measure where I stand with God. Paul says, if anyone has room to boast in their ongoing progress with God, it's me. He says, listen, I've never, never missed a Sunday school, not even Super Bowl Sunday. <laughs> I've shared my faith with all of my neighbors. Every person I've come in contact with, I've shared my faith. I've always done the Bible in a year plan, every year, even I've read the maps in the back. I've read through my Bible so many times. I've never watched an R-rated movie, except the ones where Jesus is getting murdered. 
Not a single person in this room, Paul is writing this letter, and, and for us too to realize this, there's not a single person here who is better than Paul when it comes to righteousness. And his good wasn't good enough. Paul says, if active righteousness is not good enough for me, then it's not good enough for you. If you want to judge your life by this measuring stick of looking how you measure up to what God asks, I have done that and I was perfect in it. No one was better than me and I still fell short. Here's what I've come to to hear often, probably 8 out of 10 times when I talk with Christians and and where they share their their testimony to me, the testimony of basically how have you come to know Christ and, and how do you know that you're saved and you're going to heaven? And they say things like this, well, before I was a Christian, I sinned a lot. There was a lot of sin in my life. And then I trusted in Christ, and now I sin less. And in a weird way, it's still this backwards confidence in measuring our life by what we do and the work in our life, and the decisions in our life. I'm getting better, they might think. I'm getting better at being a Christian, and therefore, since I'm getting better at being a Christian, I feel more confident in my relationship with God. Consider Mike Powell. Maybe, maybe many of you never have. He holds the record for the long jump in the Olympics. 29 and a half feet. That's like, that's like the width of this room. That's, that's a long jump. He holds the record, and he's held it for years. And he beats anyone in this room in the long jump, any, any, any day of the week, twice on Sunday, right? <laughs> now put him and anyone else on the south rim of the Grand Canyon, the second best person, the previous record holder of the long jump. And the goal is to jump from the south rim to the north rim. Who wins? The answer is, who cares? Both are at the bottom of the canyon. Who cares if you are better? Who cares if you are that good? Who cares if you're the best? Paul is the Mike Powell of personal righteousness. If you clean up your life and manage to become a really good Christian on the outside, but are still using your righteousness, your good works, your obedience as a gauge for your position with Jesus, who cares? I told you there, there were two ways because it's good to talk through these analogies and here's the, the, the way that uh, the competing way and Paul says these are dogs, these are evildoers, these are people that you don't want to follow. They're promoting this kind of faith in God. Well, there is another. The second way is the way that Paul is contending for. It is a confidence based on Jesus' decisions and Jesus' life confidence in a life of a Christian that is founded on the decision and work of Christ. Let's read verse 3 again. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. We're given two kinds of confidence. One that is a different kind of confidence in this instance. One that's not found founded and based on our work, but on the work and resurrection of Christ. He says, we worship by the Spirit. You see, an act of circumcision was an act of worship before God. It was an act of temple worship. It was obedience to God. It was an act of, of right worship before God. And worship was an act of service. It was a way of serving God, of doing something for God to bless Him 
That's what worship was. And that's what we do when we gather on a Sunday morning. We call it a, a worship service. We are serving God in our worship. And rather than serving God through practicing the rite of circumcision, you're welcome, we a cutting away of the flesh, the true circumcision, truly serve God, Paul says, in the power of the Spirit to boast in Christ. We worship Jesus on Sunday and every day for that matter when we boast in Him. Having been filled with the Spirit and through the Spirit, we sing these songs of worship from the heart through faith, boasting in Jesus. Filled with the Spirit, we, we listen to the Word of Scripture being preached and we obey it and we receive it and we embrace it. By faith, we trust in it. Filled with the Spirit, we approach the Lord's Supper and the sacraments, baptism and the Lord's Supper. By faith, we participate in the blessing of God that He's given to us in His meal, in these signs, in these symbols, in these seals of His promise to us. We have this conversation with God in our worship that is a boasting in Him. Real worship is what, is what happens when a, a sinner motivated by the Spirit says in all things that we are forgiven because of Jesus. And our relationship with God is sustained only because of the grace of God. According to Paul, the writer of most of the New Testament, there is, there is no single thing more important in the whole entire world than understanding that. Now, I'm, I'm not being careless with my words. The basis of our righteousness before God and the gauge of our righteousness and relationship with God is the most important question in all of Christianity. What does God think of you and why? There are just like there are two kinds of righteousness that are really in tension here, there are two central figures in all of history that represent each kind of righteousness, each kind of way to pursue God. And I've heard it said that there are two historical figures that matter most in all of history, and what we believe about these two figures in history will determine how we live our lives. The first man is Adam. What do you believe to be true about Adam? Adam represents our our act of righteousness, our, our righteousness of works. He was given one rule, and he rebelled. And he's our representative. He's the representative of all of human race. God, uh, by his purpose and good pleasure, appointed Adam to be the representative for all of mankind. And he failed, and he received a guilt from God, a guilt of his sin, and that passed down to all of his offspring, me, you, our children, everyone who has ever lived. The Bible says that Adam's sin led to the condemnation of all men. And then there is Jesus. And Jesus is described as the second Adam. He was obedient where Adam failed. He was faithful where Adam sinned. He trusted God where Adam did not believe God. And where sin reigned in Adam's death, grace would reign through righteousness in Christ. We are right with God, not through obedience of the law, not trying to be better than Adam or do what Adam didn't do, but through faith in the righteousness of Christ. I remember sharing this good news with a, a, a friend and many years ago, 
and the topic of Adam's sin came up, as it often does when you're talking about the Bible and talking about um, eternal life. And the person says, have you ever wondered, and he was a skeptic, and it was a great conversation, he said, have you ever wondered what would it be like if, what if Adam never, never sinned? What if he didn't eat that fruit that he wasn't supposed to eat? And my response shocked him, I think, a little bit. I said, if Adam didn't eat that fruit, then I would have. And he was shocked. He said, but you're a pastor. Of course you wouldn't do it. And I said, maybe you're right. If I didn't eat the fruit, then you would have. And he really didn't like that either. But this is so true. Many of us in our life will try to be that second Adam or that third Adam or that fourth Adam. We say, I am going to get it right where Adam failed. I'm not going to be that person. But the problem is we always find ourselves in that place where we are again, we're that Adam. We have failed if we've ever done something disobedient, if we've ever gone against our conscience, if we've ever uh, had an attitude inconsistent with the character and nature of God. We are Adam. And we have rebelled. And we have fallen. But that is, that's what's wrong with us. Every single one of us have built our confidence Every one of us, myself included, have built our confidence on something other than Jesus. Our confidence is not in being a better Adam, but in Christ, who was the better Adam. Paul strongly confronts any Christians who promote any kind of religious activity or any confidence in salvation that is not the perfect righteousness of Christ. He says, look out for the dogs. And this is a Tough phrase, look out for the dogs. What, a, what an insensitive, what a painful way to describe other people. Look out for the dogs. He's using this term as the way we might use the term rat. These vile, these chronic nuisance, these scavengers. The word has bite to it. Pun intended. What are they doing that is so evil? They're just trying to promote obedience. They're just trying to promote law. They're just trying to promote good works. What is so bad about what they're doing? What they're doing, Paul says, is they are using the tactics of the devil, which is to remind us of our record, our failure, and offer us something so attractive, so enticing, that is this, a righteousness through behavior modification. If you are better, see, you are wicked, you have messed up, but if you change, if you obey, if you do what is right, if you check this box, look at what God will think of you. Paul is writing to these people who are Christians, and this is the interesting thing. He is not writing to people who don't know Jesus. He's writing to the church. And these are people who, having already trusted in Christ, they know of Christ, they have put their confidence in Him. So why is he concerned? Why is Paul so concerned to warn them of these dangers? What's the consequence, really, for us even? What's the consequence, having already trusted Christ for our salvation, to fall into this pattern of, of working for our position before Christ? If you're a Christian, what's the consequence for you? Pursuing obedience in the law of God as a bridge or even a yardstick. Measuring your relationship with God based on how good you are. 
Because it has an effect. Here is the problem. It has an effect of adding a plus factor to grace. It has an effect of doing a grace plus something. And this eliminates grace altogether, and and it takes away grace. If grace plus something earns our position and favor before God, then it's not truly grace. Then it ultimately becomes a boasting in the flesh. And Paul says, that is not us. We do not boast in the flesh. It is insufficient. It is ineffective. It does not work. We have tried it. And, and, And this hinders our worship with God. Boasting in the flesh hinders our right worship of God. It hinders our joy in the blessings of all of God's promises. Many attend church regularly. Many are baptized. They take communion. They participate in other activities in the church like prayer and reading their Bible, but remain blinded into thinking that their religious activity proves that they are saved. Here's a quote that I've come across that I liked about um, this topic from Martin Luther, the old reformer. There is no middle ground between Christian righteousness and works righteousness. If you do not build your confidence on the work of Christ, you must build your confidence on your own work. There is no third option. It is that we build our confidence in Christ or we build it on ourselves. And this is what Paul is contending for. This is what he's encouraging us in. This is what he is pushing us towards. He says, I want you to be confident in the gospel. I want you to be encouraged in what the gospel really says about you and about me and about the work of Jesus. So let's get practical as we flesh this out. How can we build on the confidence of Christ? The first one is to, to look out. I see some good applications in this passage. To look out. It's a, it's a verb that's used three times in, in our opening passage. Pay attention to what you hear. Pay attention to what influences your thinking and your feeling, your behaving. Three times he says, look out. Paul gives warning. He says, do not be blind. You know, in ancient Greek... Um, culture, the most valuable of all the senses, which probably hasn't changed much for today, most valuable of all senses is sight. It was used as a metaphor for the ability to discern spiritual things. There's a blindness of heart. There's a blindness to spiritual things. Jesus healed blindness physically and used that to point to our spiritual need for having our eyes opened to spiritual realities. And a maturing Christian is discerning. Ask God to have our eyes open to see, to observe. The Bible tells us that every single one of us has built our confidence on something other than Christ, and we need to remember that we are prone to continue to do this, prone to continue to be blinded, to be deceived, to be confused, even after trusting in Christ. Paul talks about, uh, in another letter, he says in 2 Corinthians 10, he says, we neither destroy arguments of every lofty I'm sorry he says we destroy arguments of every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. He's answering a question, how do we how ought we form an opinion about anything? Anything in life. How we work, how we play, how we celebrate, how we form our decisions, how we love. How do we form an opinion about anything? Paul says that we we hold every thought captive to obey Christ. We bring everything under the Word of God. You know how as you get older in life, 
you look back on your former years and you realize how foolish you were. Now, it doesn't matter. You might look back on your teenage years and say, look at how I've grown. I'm glad I'm not that man or woman. You might look back on your, your 20s or 30s or, or even your 50s. It doesn't matter what decade it was. You look back and you always, most often, you see, I'm, I'm better now. Imagine if I, what I would be like if I was still like that. So considering that reality, think of your life right now. If that is true, then where you are right now, there's something foolish in your life that you're doing and you're going to grow in. So we look out. So we ask that God would open our eyes to see. Without fail, this happens. Who are the dogs? They are the ones that mark that want to mark their faith in Christ but what by what they do or what they don't do. And they want to get the list of things that they do well. And they want to say, I'm not as bad as I was in college. I'm not as bad as I was when I first got married. I'm not as bad as you. And therefore, I feel good with where I stand with Jesus. Is this a big issue? Is this a serious issue? Because there are a lot of different kinds of beliefs among even Christians today, right? There are different denominations, there's different preferences, there's different interpretations, there's all different kinds of things. And is this really a big issue? Well, let me, let me, let me tell you this in, in this way, giving you another analogy. Not only in Gladden Farms do we have a lot, of corn, uh, a lot of cotton, we also have a lot of dogs. If you live up there, you know what I'm talking about. We have a lot of dogs. And, and my wife and I, we used to ride our bikes a lot. We don't anymore. Because there's that thought in your mind as you're riding and a dog is chasing and you and you think, now how fast do they run again? And how fast does my speedometer say? Because we could go bike riding and there were a couple houses that had these pretty terrifying dogs. The danger is not merely this inconvenient bark. For some, it's an inconvenient bark that's more of a nuisance. But for some dogs, the danger is really big. For a dog to sink his teeth into you can cause Irreparable damage. Serious effect on our lives. This is a big deal. And for Paul, he says, this is the most important thing. The most important thing. This isn't an issue of, it's not an open hand issue. It's not a tomato, tomato kind of thing. It's not an issue of, well, we're all Christians. We all believe in Jesus. For Paul, he says, this is what matters. What makes you accepted by God? If it is you, if it is your good, then you are still trying to save yourself and God has not saved you. But if it is Christ, then all of his blessing, all of his promise, everything is yours. You belong to him. You've received his blessing, his promise. He is your only hope. Paul says there is nothing more important than what we believe about the righteousness of Christ credited to us by faith alone. Watch out for this kind of faith, Paul says. The imputed righteousness of Christ is the most critical doctrine in all of Christianity. Next thing we can do, looking out for these things, is to teach the gospel to our heart. True cause for rejoicing exists only within the sphere of our relationship with Jesus Christ. Let me tell you that again. True cause for rejoicing exists exists only within the sphere of our relationship with Jesus Christ. 
We are fighting a losing war. We're playing a game that we cannot win when we attempt to find our joy outside of the righteousness of Christ. This joy is an absence of fear of condemnation. It is the presence of a deep confidence in the future that is based on a trust in God's purpose for us. Paul says, I'm not bothered to tell you this again. I've told you this before. I'm I'm writing it to you again. I'm repeating myself. I don't mind to repeat myself if it means repeating this. A good teacher is not afraid to repeat himself. Repetition is good. Saying the same thing over and over again is good. Saying the same thing in a different way is good. Repeating yourself is good. Repetition is helpful. Repeating yourself is very good. You and I need to preach this to our hearts in repetition over and over and over again. Christ is my joy. Christ is my confidence. Christ is my salvation. Christ is my righteousness. Christ is my acceptance. Christ is my hope. Christ is my forgiveness. Christ is my peace. Christ is my treasure. What is he again? And then you tell yourself again. Don't you realize, I, I come to realize this often, that when I am searching for this, when I am in this in place of, of despair or hurt or temptation in my faith, I am saying, God, what is that key? Can I find that key to, to my faith that will boost me out of this place of, of hurt, of failure, of shame and guilt? Maybe there's something I haven't read in Scripture yet, and I come to realize it's not that there is this key that needs to unlock this magical secret to a life of faith, but rather a simple message of the gospel that I need to tell myself over and over and over again, every day. The idea that we are made right with God through perfect righteousness of Jesus is not something easy to understand. Because it's difficult to understand when we fall into sin, we forget this dynamic and we then try to, we feel like we're on probation with God. We try to earn ourselves back into his forgiveness. When we are tempted, when we're struggling, when we're discouraging. And this is what the law does. The law perches on our shoulder and begins to speak to us. And this is what Martin Luther says in his in his article he wrote on the book of Galatians, he says the law speaks back to us and says you want to come and we need to speak back to the law. We need to talk to the law. He says you want to come up into my heart and into my head and you want to steal your joy from me. You want to put me in my place and condemn me because of my sins. You've overstepped your bounds. Know your place. You are a guide for my behavior, but you are not my salvation. You are a helper to discern what God desires for me, but you are not my Lord, for my confidence is in Christ. I rejoice in Jesus. We need to speak to ourselves like this. We need to teach the gospel to our heart. If you are in shame, if you are in guilt, if you don't know how to get out and you're saying, tomorrow's the day where I do things better, it is good for you to know that you will find yourself at that place again. And you will not find joy fighting that battle, playing that game. But the freedom is in Christ and His perfect righteousness. When we say, that is my confidence, that Jesus took my sins so that I could have 
his favor with God. So I'm going to look to him. I'm going to trust in him. How could he love me? How often I have fallen. How often I have sinned. How often I have rebelled. You see, the Bible calls this a curse, and that's exactly what it feels like. It's this crazy, insane cycle of trying trying to get better and better, and yet we might take a step forward, but then we take two steps back. Our confidence is in Christ. And lastly, rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. The source of our righteousness should radically affect the way that we live. The source and hope of the righteousness of God is Jesus. We rejoice in that. Paul says in verse 1, rejoice in the Lord. Jesus is the basis and the focus of our joy. It's an imperative. This is a command. Rejoice in the Lord. It is, a, it is an imperative that refers to an activity, not a feeling. It doesn't mean just be happy already with what you have. It says rejoice. It means to verbalize. It means to vocalize this praise out of a heart that is filled with the knowledge of what God has done for you in Jesus. Our relationship with Christ should eliminate all attraction to every kind of religious work that seeks to find our favor with God through obedience. The Bible tells us this is our problem. We've done this so many times. And after allowing this, the Word of God to search our hearts and to dig into our, our minds, we should repent of our sins. Repentance is an act of worship. It's an act of service to God, an act of worship on the completed work of Jesus. It is an acknowledgement of how often we have built our confidence on something else and on everything but Christ. And it is a turning away from those things and turning to Christ that's what it means to repent, to repent. Jesus says the kingdom is here. Repent and find life. There is life in repentance. There's forgiveness in repentance. It's acknowledging I've been building my life. I'm getting better and I need to build it on Christ's completed work. And so I'm going to turn from that and I'm going to turn to Jesus. And I'm going to find healing. I'm going to find his forgiveness. I'm going to find power to know Him, to pursue Him, to love Him, to obey Him. Here's why we rejoice. And I'll leave you with this. No one is good enough. No one is good enough to earn the grace of God. But the good thing is, as Paul tells us, no one is too far gone to receive the grace of God. Let's pray. For more audio and information, please visit holycrosstucson.com.